set. <clears throat> Good morning. It's a while since I've been here in person. I think I spoke a couple of times over Zoom, but it isn't the same, and it's great to be together and uh, to see so many here uh, in this second service. If you'd all been together in one time, I don't know if we would have all fit in or not. But it's great. Good. Um, the, uh, the message series that's been put together by the leadership here is really great. It's a uh, um, theme of God with us, of course, but putting together some of the themes of the Advent season, uh, I've been given the one of joy with some of our realities in the human condition. Uh, for today, we're thinking about suffering. And I like the honesty of this series. It puts these two things up against each other. We, uh, we know this is a great season of joy, good tidings and uh, joy and peace to all mankind. And sometimes we uh, put that up against the realities of what we're facing in our life, what we see in the world, tremendous turmoil, tremendous suffering, tremendous conflict, tremendous uh, danger of many kinds, loss and grief that, that uh, Glenn has just been talking about. And we, we wonder, what's this all about? Uh, where, where is this peace and comfort and joy? Why aren't, why aren't I getting any of that? I don't know if you feel that way a little bit. And, and I was really, really excited to hear uh, what Glenn was sharing about the ministry that Wallenstein has to, to try to take care of people who are suffering. Because what we're doing there is we're, we're, we're admitting that we do. And you know, I grew up in an evangelical world where you come, you come to church on Sunday morning and you, you put on your smile and your handshake and your we're just praising the Lord. And a lot of, of that kind of culture where nobody has the ability to be real about the struggles, about the pain, about the fear, about the doubts, about the loss, about the grief, about the things of life. We create that kind of culture. Uh, everybody comes in with the smiles on. Everybody goes out the door saying, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I like everybody else here who seems to have it all together? But uh, it's wonderful that we are moving into I think, a new era where, where we're all interested in, in an authentic faith. If it's not real, what's the point? If it's something we just come on Sundays and, and put on, then what's the point? I'm hoping that as we go through this story, we'll get to, to somewhere that helps you with that, those thoughts today. Um, this is an interesting experience for me repeating the message because I don't use notes. Uh, I have PowerPoint slides we're going to look at, and that helps keep me on track, but I'm never too sure what's going to come up. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we'll see where the Lord leads us as we, as we move along. How many of you play chess? How many of you are chess players? Hey, that's a lot more than the first meeting. <laughs> this is the intelligentsia I'm talking to this time. And, and you know, when I was a kid, I was, my dad taught me the moves. And uh, he and I used to play a bit. He'd, he wouldn't let me win, but he'd be gentle. And uh, I'd learn how things went. And I got up into my teens. I remember a couple times at youth camp and other places, someone says, hey, who plays chess? And I'm like, I play chess. And I sit down, and four moves in, I'm, I'm done. And I realize I don't play chess. I know how to move the pieces, but I don't actually know how. And you realize, as you, and I just basically gave the game up. I don't remember the last time. 
because you realize the complexities and that, that everything you move has these, these ripples. There's this guy, um, Magnus Carlsen, who's supposed to be the, one of the best in the world right now. He's the Bobby Fisher of this era. I see lots of gray hair, so you remember Bobby Fisher. But uh, he apparently can typically see 15 to 20 moves ahead. He knows what's going to happen. If I do this, they'll do that. And if they do that, I'll do this. And away we go. And he can see it all. It just boggles my mind. Uh, and and the, 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 the number of pieces, the number of, of different kinds of moves, the number of squares on the board is so complex that these, these guys who are able to really master the game uh, just, just boggle my mind. Well, as we look at, at our story today, as I was reading it and studying it and thinking a lot about today, I thought, this is like some amazing eternal chess game. This is like the Lord was thinking, not 20 moves ahead, 20 generations ahead. And, and there's all of these moving parts and all of these squares on the board. And I'm going to read the rest of this chapter because as the wise men come to Jerusalem and all the things you saw acted out for you here very well, it's nice to have our, our scripture reading. Are you like me? And I'll freely admit it that when the preacher's reading the scripture for his text, I often kind of, my mind wanders sometimes. That was great. We should have these guys acted out every, every, all the scriptures. Some passages would be a little difficult, but it's a helpful thing. So I'm just going to carry on from verse 13. Uh, we read to verse 12 already. So after the wise men had come and, and, and seen Mary and Joseph and the child, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we've been given this Advent theme of joy, great joy to the world. We sing joy to the world. That, that carol is actually written about the second coming of Christ, but I don't want to spoil it for you because we sing it at Christmas. And it's, uh, it makes a little more sense when you read it about his second coming. And we, we remember the angels announcing, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And 
and, and these announcements by the angels of peace on earth, goodwill to men, of great joy, we, 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 get, we can get quite emotional about that and the coming of this child into the world that brought all these things. And then we stop and think, yeah, but I'm not really feeling a lot of joy right now. I don't really see a lot of peace. There's that great carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Do you know that one? It's one of my favorites. It's got a couple different tunes. But it, it went, uh, uh, how's it go? Um, uh, and it says, there is no peace on earth, I said. You know, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we look around and we see hate is so strong, don't we? If we're on social media at all, if, we, if we're on the internet, if we, if we just talk to people, you know, road rage, people in the market, people are grouchy. We see hatred and we, we wonder, where is this peace, where is this joy? Well, hopefully at the end of this time together, you'll have a few more answers about why what we feel and experience does not necessarily measure up to the peace and joy that we might expect from the coming of the Lord Jesus. There's, I've identified four forces that are at work in this story. First is the times. The second are the events. The third is the word of God. And the fourth is the spirit of God. Those four things are all... Uh, impacting the events of the story we've been considering today. The first is the times. Now you think about this. Jesus was born in Judea during the time of King Herod. That's our opening verse. Specifies the time. Doesn't give us years. Gives us the ruler. This, This King Herod, Herod the Great, ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And if you're a little confused by that, the calendars that we use uh, do not start at 0 BC or 0 AD or even 1 AD, but they're a little bit out of sync with what, what they believe, people a lot smarter than I, believe were the actual dates. And so Jesus was born around 4, somewhere around 4 BC. Herod died after the birth of Jesus, but not that long, as you can tell from our story. And he had been given the title King of Judea by the Roman Empire, by the Roman Senate ended up dying a horrible death in 4 BC. But he was a powerful and rather wicked man. He did a lot of good things, did a lot of building, but he also uh, was, was very, very power hungry. We might call him a control freak today. And when we look at Luke, we see that uh, we're given a similar time reference by a person who's in control. In the days a decree went out, from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the whole empire. Now, Caesar Augustus is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, a couple hundred years earlier, had, uh, had expanded the, the Republic of Rome. They had conquered other nations. They had taken over. They had expanded and grown and grown till finally the establishment of this Roman Empire, which controlled the known world at the time, with, with Caesar Augustus as the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And they actually deified him. He was seen as a god, as were the subsequent emperors. Now, we know that power corrupts. These guys were very, very powerful to start with. And the more uh, power they got, and especially when you start calling somebody a god, uh, we have had some politicians in our experience who behave as though they think they're a god. Uh, 
but uh, when you actually tell somebody he's God and give him absolute power, we know the kind of corruption the human heart will end up uh, developing. And that was certainly true for him. And it's interesting, too, that through the successive emperors, as we got into Tiberius and Caligula and Gaius, uh, sorry, Claudius and then Nero, they got, they got successively more wicked, more sadistic, more cruel, more brutal, more perverse, and, and uh, quite a, a, a list of characters there. The reason they're all there is that these guys are the guys who were running the, the world, the known world, during the time that we have in the New Testament. From the birth of Jesus through to when Peter's writing his epistles about the persecution that Christians are, are facing. Don't think it's strange that you're suffering these persecutions. And, and Nero was the greatest persecutor of the Christians, uh, but, but the others were were similarly inclined. There's some horrific stories of the, of the torture and killing and persecution of Christians. Uh, one, for example, is Nero, who would put Christians on poles around his property and tar them and put straw around them and use them as torches to light his garden parties and burn them alive just for amusement. So very, very very, very harsh times. And these are the times in which the Lord Jesus was born and lived and raised and, and died. And it's the times in which the church was born. And we think this is very significant. You know, the, from the time Adam and Eve sinned and were driven from the garden, it was prophesied that one would come, born of a woman, who would crush the head of Satan. In the meantime, Satan was going to be doing his work all over this, this, this earth. But one would come who would defeat Satan. And you can imagine uh, people scratching their heads. Did they think that, was, that person was coming next week, next month, a year or two? Like, when's this going to happen? And as, as our, the Old Testament and the Noah and Abraham and the patriarchs and through the kings and then through the prophets, and we see all these prophets, we've been reading some of their quotes this morning, that are contained for us in the New Testament. It's always wonderful when the prophecy is actually quoted in the New Testament and we're told this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's really exciting to me when I see that. Sometimes we have prophecies and we kind of guess about them and we figure out, fill in a lot of blanks ourselves. But 75% but of all the prophecies in the Bible have already been fulfilled. And it's wonderful when, when we're told this is that. And these, these people were looking ahead, and they were looking for this Messiah, and what would be the perfect time? What would be the time as God contemplates the unfolding of human history? And, and I don't like to put silly thoughts into the mouth of God. That's rather wrong. But, but he wouldn't be sitting there saying, now let me think, when will I send my son to become a human being, to take on flesh and blood and, and, and just get right in there with these humans? and experience everything and, and, and submit himself willingly to all of the suffering and difficulties of being a human being. And we look through the thousands of years of recorded history we have, and if you and I were sending our only son into that, I'd have chosen a different time. I'd have chosen an easier time. But this is when it came, at that, at that 
precise moment in Bethlehem, at this exact time when Julius Caesar is running the empire, telling people they have to go down to Bethlehem to get registered. It says all the world should be taxed in King James. You're used to that language, some of you. They didn't have to go down and pay a tax. It seems they were going down to register with this Roman Empire. You're going to be on the books. Not only does that mean they're going to be taxing you heavily because they know who you are and where you live, but they might enlist you for other things too. Who knows what, what this overreaching government might want to do once they've got you on the books and registered. And that's what this was all about. That's what the census was for. This very time. Look at the events. This star comes up, a supernatural phenomenon. It had meaning. Uh, the king of the Jews is born, the, the Magi say. How did they know that? Well, they had, this, they had some scripture. The, the Israel had been down in Babylon for, for 70 years. Daniel was down there. He prophesied down there. There were many devout believers who, in God, in Jehovah, who, who stayed on down in that part of the world. And they knew enough. Now, maybe they also studied others, other religious writings and things. I don't know. We don't know. But they, know, they knew that this was a thing. The king of the Jews was coming. This star gave them guidance, but it gave them guidance right to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is beyond Jerusalem as they would come from the east, about seven miles, I believe, 10 or 11 kilometers. And they... It takes them right to guidance. It gives, gives them very specific direction. We, we heard the, the, the team reading when it rose. It went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So presumably this was visible by anybody who was looking and thinking. But, but we see it was very specific, don't we? That, that this, this, this wasn't just a general star somewhere up there that someone says, hey, is that a new star? What does that mean? This is something that rose, that went ahead of them, that stopped over a particular house. Very interesting. The word of God, how does that play in this particular story? Well, quite, quite a large role because the Magi, they come and they say, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? So they know the word of God. The word of God has directed them, has helped them interpret that sign. Herod says, where is the Messiah to be born? Like, this is interesting. Herod knew there was going to be a Messiah coming. Uh, he, he knew the Old Testament, the Bible, as he had it, well enough to know that. Uh, maybe he'd been to Sunday school or something, but he knew this was a thing. And he didn't know scripture, he didn't know the chapter and verse, so he had to call the chief priests. And they came and they told him it would be in Bethlehem in Judea. He said, I knew it was in there somewhere. And you know how we, we think we know something? We're not too sure until we find the actual verse. These guys tell him it's going to be in Bethlehem, for that is what the prophet has written. It's really interesting. Herod not only knew the Bible, but he clearly believed it. <laughs> he believed this Messiah was coming, and he believed this Messiah was a threat to him. He believed the word of God. That's, that's something to think about for a minute. He, he hadn't maybe processed all of the bad things that happened to people who opposed the will of God, which was also in the Old Testament. But he believed the Messiah was coming, and he believed that he was the real deal and that he was a threat to his, his power and his position. We look at, uh, at, at Joseph, the fight to Egypt, as we call it, and the, the, the prophecy was fulfilled. The Lord had said through the prophets, out of Egypt I have called my son. Wow. 
Then they end up going to Nazareth, and, and again, the word of God is fulfilled. So it, was, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And one of the most difficult things, one of the most horrific things, is that the slaughter of these infants, two-year-old boys and under, in this whole region, is that hundreds? We don't know how many that was. Surely hundreds. Thousands, I don't know. Surely hundreds. Horrific. And this was prophesied by the word of God. 20 moves ago, 20 generations ago, this was prophesied, this weeping and this wailing. It could be hard to get our heads around. The word of God had laid this all out. This was all, these, these pieces were moving around, these places, these people intersecting, their lives overlapping, in ways that were having these ripple effects, all being orchestrated by the sovereign God of the universe, by the Master. And yet we see these horrific things having happened. The Spirit of God very clearly and personally at work here. And I say personally because the Spirit of God orchestrated everything, the timing, the stars, the word, everything. But, but we see a specific inter intervention here where they were warned, the Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned another way. We see that Joseph, uh, the Lord appeared to him in a dream. We, we, we love this idea, don't we? Of, wouldn't it be great if we could just hear the Lord speak to us? The trouble is he may, may not always be telling us what we want to hear. And, and he says, get up and go and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there and I'll tell you uh, until I tell you. We know that uh, Again, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him to get up and, and go back to Israel because it was safe now. But then a little amendment again. The Spirit of the Lord comes and the angel says, um, in a dream, don't go to that part of, of Judea. Go, go up to Galilee and then up into the hills away from the Sea of Galilee into this remote town called Nazareth. So all this in direction... And what I want to suggest that these four, four forces that I've just gone through for you, there might be others, but this is how it helped me understand this passage, are very significant things. They're the same four forces we need to be thinking about in our own life. Think about the times. Brutal, cruel, sadistic, authoritarian oppressors. One of the most oppressive, wicked regimes the world has seen. It got progressively so could give the kind of power to a man like Herod. Enough autonomy that he could do what he wanted, but backed by the power of the Roman Empire. Unbelievable. Kill all those hundreds, everybody under two, all the boys under two, just kill them. Can you imagine what that looked like? Can you imagine, can you imagine every home, every family touched by that? Weeping and wailing throughout. Horrific to even think about it. Depression of the Lord's people by the Roman Empire, the occupation of God's promised land by a foreign Roman Empire, and a, a, and a culture that created something so cruel we know as crucifixion. Not only the most painful, torturous, drawn-out death, but shameful, stripped naked, spread out, up before the world, to ridicule, to shame in every possible way. And the Lord says, this is the time. 
This is perfect. Finally, everything in the world has all just lined up in such a way that this is when I'm going to send my son in flesh to come into the middle of that. When my people are oppressed, when, when, when life is cruel and harsh, when they're going to hunt him down from the day he's born, when they're going to kill him by the most gruesome, painful, shameful way possible. Perfect. Now, I've been waiting thousands of years for a time like this. This is the time. Interesting, isn't it? What about this star? This star led right into the courts of King Herod. And leading into King Herod meant leading to the slaughter of the innocents, which meant leading to the flight to Egypt, which meant leading to Nazareth. The ripple effects of that star. What about the word of God? Does it not trouble you a bit that this was all planned long ago, 20 generations ago, 20 moves ago in chess terms? All foreseen, the complexities, all these people, all these squares on the board, all coming together at this moment in time and everything being predicted. You know, it was interesting. A lot of people used to scratch their heads. The, the, the Jewish devout scholars would scratch their heads. They would look at Isaiah and they would see the suffering servant and then they'd see the reigning king and they'd say to themselves, there must be two messiahs. There's got to be two messiahs. It's got to be the suffering servant and the reigning king. Simple, two messiahs. And there were others who looked at these prophecies that we're looking at today, and they'd say, look it, Messiah comes from Bethlehem. No, he doesn't. He comes from Egypt. No, he doesn't. He comes from Nazareth. He's a Nazarene. No, he doesn't. He's from Bethlehem. See right here. No, I'm just, no. Some people say, ah, there's three Messiahs. One from Bethlehem, one from Egypt, one from Nazareth. No, there's two Messiahs. Oh, maybe there's five Messiahs. <laughs> The reigning king and the offering servant and the one from Bethlehem, the one from Egypt, and the one from Nazareth. Or maybe there's a reigning king from Bethlehem and a reigning king from Nazareth and a reigning king from Egypt and a suffering servant from Egypt. What are we up to? About six messiahs. Lots of theories. Everybody had a theory. Clear teaching of the word of God. Who could have seen this fulfilled in this baby? Who could ever have seen all of this all coming together like that? We can hardly take it in. In retrospect, when we know the end and know the, how it all worked out. That's why I myself, I hold prophecy and end times very loosely. I, I'm very careful not to say, I know how this is going to happen. I'll let me tell you. I, I have a feeling none of us can get it all right. The most devout scholar, the one who loved the Lord the most in the intertestamental period, the prophets who wrote these words and looked into it and, and just all they wanted to do was know and love God, they couldn't possibly have figured this out. And I, I have a feeling it's going to surprise us all. So when people ask me about end times, I always encourage them to just, just hold it loosely. Have your convictions. Have your ideas. We know the big picture. We know the Lord's coming back to put everything right. We, we know that. There are the big ideas are there for sure. Details? Eh. Not so sure. Spirit of God gave the dreams and he did not give the dreams. What do I mean by that? 
Well, we've, we've just read the dreams and the angels, the visits that, that God gave, but what about the ones he didn't give? See, all he had to do, he warned the Magi, don't go back to Herod because, you know, he might kill you. <laughs> because, you know, he's not very happy with what's going on. Like, it seems as though the Lord cared about the Magi not getting in trouble. But he didn't give them a dream warning them not to go to Herod in the first place. He says, gives them, a, gives them a message, don't go back because you'll get in trouble. Gives Joseph, run away to Egypt because you, you, know, you might be hunted. Tells him, go back, or don't go back there, go back there. He seems to be giving these messages to everybody to make sure that they don't get in trouble or killed or worse. And he never gave a dream to the Magi. Don't go to Herod, because terrible things will happen. That's quite an omission. I don't think any of us here believe God went, oh, forgot that. No. Why? Because this is, first of all, his omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe. Second of all, because it was prophesied, of this suffering and sorrow, this weeping and wailing, this grief and loss was all in the books hundreds of years ago. Well, that's the reality of the Christmas story. And the Lord didn't varnish it, and the writers don't varnish it. If I was Matthew, I'd leave this out. I'd doctor it up a little bit if I was trying to invent a religion, if I was trying to create a story. If I wanted people to have an image of God they could get behind and say, this is great, let's worship this God. He's really going to come through for me. I was trying to get people on board. If I was trying to get converts, win followers, I'd leave this bit out. I'd sort of improve the optics a bit, as we say. And, and yet through this whole story, we see the Lord saying, now the Holy Spirit of God will work in Mary and a child will be conceived and nine months from now, Augustus will put out an order that Mary and Joseph will have to go to Bethlehem. That was in the books years, hundreds of years ago because he'd be born in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus, the timing was not his own. It was God's. And this arduous journey, which usually takes four or five days at the best if you're fit and young, but if you're nine months pregnant, it probably took nine or ten days. A terrible journey. And of course, no room in the inn, no comforts, no welcome. Uh, next thing you know, you've got to flee down to Egypt, probably about 100 kilometers. You don't know exactly where in Egypt they, they got to. But uh, another, another trip. And then they got to begin their early life as a young family and as refugees, displaced persons in a foreign country. Who knows even how they got by? The slaughter of these innocent children. How that must have grieved the heart of God. And yet he clearly not only knew it would happen, but allowed it to happen. This causes us deep, deep problems, doesn't it? It's okay to be real about that. It's disturbing to us. If we were God, we wouldn't do that. And God is quite okay with that. He says... Clearly, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so 
much higher are my thoughts and my ways than yours. Huge strain on our ability to trust that God is good. Jesus was hunted for years. We probably, I don't know this. This is just conjecture. But, and it was the plan of, uh, and will of God that he not begin his public ministry for another 30 years or so. But that might have been partly, at least, to let things cool down. Because he's in this little village up in Galilee where Herod and his people are not going to be that active. And uh, he's a hunted man still. And Joseph was as afraid of his son as he was of Herod. So I want to just move on as we close as we head towards our closing, I want us to, 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 to think this. This is really the take-home message, or maybe four take-home messages. And that is that the forces that shape the Christmas story shape your story. They shape your life, your worldview, your walk with the Lord, your view of who God is, and your relationship with him. The times we live in. How Concerning to you are the times we live in, the rapid change in this society we live in. I call it progressive liberalism. Labels don't work anymore. Have you noticed that? But I used it. And what do I mean by that? Oh, I mean the whole culture that's changing, the, the, whether, it's, whether it's immorality or, or whether it's the woke culture or the, or the cancel culture or all the things that, that are becoming such huge social issues that are upsetting us so much and are so different than what we have had historically as believers in Canada? Is it the overreaching government? Is it the, the government that is trying to control us? Is that causing you problems? And we have our personal times, our own issues uh, that aren't maybe global, but are very individual, and the things that we all wrestle with, the hardships of every kind. Well. It's important for us to remember that the point at which God chose for Jesus to enter into humanity was the most totalitarian, authoritarian, oppressive regime we've known. Ruled the whole known world at the time. And complete control. Down, you know, in an era before computers and social insurance numbers and everything else, down to your hometown and you register and you better be registered because if the guy comes knocks on your door and you're not, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. This is going to allow for a level of control in a pre-tech world that's never been enforced before. So much so that a Roman soldier could come up to a Jew and say, carry my backpack for a mile. That was into the Roman law. And, and they had no choice. And of course, for the Jews for Jesus' people, for God's own people. They had an explicit command, clearly stated command, not to do that on the Sabbath. And the Roman didn't care if it happened to be the Sabbath or not. And Jesus, you know, he doesn't say much about this oppressive regime. He doesn't talk. The disciples were itching for him to overthrow it and, you know, get rid of it and establish his kingdom. That's what they thought he was going to do, and they were itching for that. But Jesus never seems to get around to it. He never seems to talk much about it. And he says, you know, if, if you're compelled, and it happens to be the Sabbath, it doesn't really matter what day, but to carry this pack, 
clear violation. Don't forget, Moses had, was told to put to death the man who had just been gathering sticks on the Sabbath. It didn't say run to the rabbi for religious exemption or protest against the oppressive regime. He said carry it too. Blow them away. They're oppressing you and forcing you to do one mile. You do too. This wicked, perverse, immoral, godless regime that worshipped Augustus Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Well, what about this as a quote? When we went to Zimbabwe, soon after we arrived, I was sent a, this quote from a friend. I printed it out, put it above my desk, and it was there. I got note by heart. God has brought us into these times, into this time. Not ourselves or some dark demon. If we are unable to cope with that which God has prepared for us, how utterly unfit we would be to cope with anything we might imagine for ourselves. Do we feel somehow we live in such times that it's hard to be a Christian, hard to follow God? Consider the times when Christ was born, when he, wrote, when he lived. Consider the birth of the church and the life of the church. Consider our brothers and sisters around the world who live in either hostile environments where they are, are imprisoned, or whether they are killed, whether they are expelled for following Jesus Christ. Consider the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. Consider the times we live in. Are we really going to feel sorry for ourselves? Are we really going to somehow see this as some kind of obstacle to our walk with Christ, to our spiritual life? I see a lot of people wringing their hands for about everything. All the issues. Christians who seem to be totally focused on how bad the times are have never stopped to consider this precise moment that God foreordained to take on flesh and come into our Events. Do you interpret events by scripture? Or do you interpret the scripture by events? What about fleeces? You know, Gideon put out his fleece. If you don't know the story in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, it's a long time ago. We're told what he did to try to determine God's will. Because um, he really wanted to be sure before he did something that seemed very foolish. And a lot of believers do that, and maybe you do. If this happens, I'll do that. And if that happens, I'll do this. Uh, and we'll just see what, what happens. Sometimes we pick the more likely thing that's going to happen for the result we want. But uh, we're not invited to do that, folks. We're not invited to do that. The Lord is able to lead. And he will lead through his word, through his spirit. I don't advise it. But we can demand God gives a sign. I don't advise that. The Jews demand a sign. The, and, you know, we, we, we're told in a negative way. And, and I love for us to, to be able to understand that our star, our equivalent, is anything or any event that makes us want to get up and go seek Jesus. It makes us want to find out if this is really him trying to get our attention about something. Because very often, when we, when we want signs, it's so we don't buy the wrong house. Or so we don't marry the wrong guy or girl. 
or go to the wrong school or do something that's going to wreck our life. And very often when we're looking for a sign from the Lord, it's not that we might go and worship him or enter into a closer relationship or follow him in the way of suffering more. No, no, it's to prevent our suffering. Tell me what to do, Lord. I don't want to buy a house that's going to, you know, be a, be a real dud and cost me a lot of money. And, you know, uh, and, and I don't want to, you know, certainly don't want to marry somebody who's going to be a dud either, right? I could ruin my life. And, and all of a sudden, that's when we are, are down on our knees imploring God to show us a sign. Why? For our own benefit. To try to lessen the possibility of us suffering. Well, this star got the attention of this little group of wise men. And they, they came giving, they came worshiping, they came seeking and following. And there are signs in your life that get your attention. And you go, wow, I've been ignoring the Lord Jesus. I haven't been seeking him, I haven't been following him. Uh, I haven't really cared what his will is in my life. That's your star, that's your sign. And you know, what house you buy is not that important. The word of God. <laughs> one of the great take-homes from this one is that everything important is taken care of. This is what the word of God teaches us. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. It's, it, he's got it all planned. Satan has been defeated in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Eternity is yours if you want it. This world is a sinful, fallen place that is, 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 is irreparable. And he's going to have to come and destroy it, create a new heaven, new earth. He's going to come back and put it all right. And, and in the meantime, he does not take us out of the suffering. If it was demonstrable that Christians don't suffer, like you are, you couldn't build a big enough place. They'd be lined up all the way down to Elmira, trying to get in the door. If it could be demonstrated that people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are happy, healthy, and wealthy, and everything just goes tickety-boo. Couldn't build big enough places. Because people care more about that than they care about their eternity, care about their eternal souls, care about being like Jesus, care about things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Don't give me patience. Take away the stuff that tries my patience. Hmm? Don't give me joy and suffering. Take away suffering so I can be happy. Which is a poor second choice to joy. This is what the Word of God teaches us. Everything important is all taken care of. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back and, and take you to be with me, that where I am there you may be also. I'll take you to a place where there is no suffering. I'll take you to a place where there is no grief, no loss, ever again, forever and ever. That's the message of Christmas. View all your times and events through the lens of the Word of God, not the word of God through the lens of the times and events. There are more, more young folk here, but there's enough. Especially want to talk to you younger folks. Because you're seeing a rapidly changing world. And the danger is, looking this way, there's some back there too. Lots of young people, great. But all of us, there's a, a danger of saying, you know, this Bible, like it really worked in the 60s, I guess, or the 70s. Like it, you know, leave it to beaver times, uh, you know, the Bible really worked. But you don't know what's going on out there. All the wickedness and the immorality, all the stuff, 
And you know, what people think is normal and what people are, are, are militantly fighting to be accepted as normal, you don't understand all that. This is completely counter to the Bible. Well, the fact is, the last 100 years in, in North America has been the anomaly. The normal thing has been from day one for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for people who want to follow him and live life his way to be completely countercultural. We're just graduating kindergarten, folks. We're just coming into a hostile environment where it's been the norm for the church all around the world and since the day Jesus was born. Hunted, hated, persecuted, crucified, says, follow me. Can you take up your cross? It's been the message. The healthy, happy, healthy, I quoted, my time's gone. I quoted Wesley from The Princess Bride. Some of you know what The Princess Bride was. But the princess says, you mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, princess. And anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Life is pain. What Glenn shared confirms that. You have an atmosphere here where it's okay to be hurting and suffering, because we all are. The, the gospel is not about making that all go away, or pretending it has. The gospel is about us having strength, resilience, the God of all comfort in our hearts and our lives, knowing the joy uh, and the peace that passes understanding in the midst of great loss and great suffering. The, and the, that hope in a hopeless world, a world with no meaning and no purpose and no hope. And we have this fantastic, sure and certain expectation that we will be forever with the Lord. That is the message. Spirit of God, Lead, the leading of the Holy Spirit will not necessarily lead you to happy, healthy, wealthy times. Jesus, John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, his cousin? <laughs> Foreordained to come and be the forerunner for the Lord Jesus. Prophesied hundreds of years earlier. He's languishing in prison. Danger of getting his head cut off. And he does eventually. But he sends word to Jesus. Uh, remember me, your cousin. Pro prophesied, your forerunner. Over here in the dungeon. Remember, you who... Jesus says, Every, blessed is everyone who does not fall away because I don't come through for you the way you want me to. And John the Baptist is beheaded, his own cousin. And, and if you have moments where you're just ready to pack it in with the Lord because he's not coming through for me. He's not taking away my suffering. He's not giving me what I want, what I need. Well, remember, you are a piece on the board. The Lord ordained all of these things to come together in such a way in your life that you're here on a Sunday morning listening to his word, fellowshipping with his people under the sound, under the influence of the Holy Spirit with people who love the Lord and love you. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. He's present and active in your life. Don't demand relief. Don't demand relief. Lift your eyes up with joy the joy set before you, that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, endure what must be endured. Reach out to other believers for strength, for comfort. May the God of all comfort comfort you. May the peace that passes understanding rule in your hearts and lives. May you know the joy of his presence in a painful fallen world.